We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're just going to take a real quick look at the uh, beginning of this, this chapter here. It's, uh, it's the beginning of what most would call the Sermon on the Mount. And let me get mine opened here again. Um, it, it's, um, it go, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, if you're going to read it, I mean, uh, as, a, as a single uh, lesson, it would, you'd read out the whole thing, because that's the way Matthew had, had developed it when he wrote it into uh, his gospel. Uh, one of the things when we look into, um, look to interpret scripture, uh, our friend Cliff always says, to understand the text need to understand the context. So before we jump into this, let's just review the context a little bit here that may maybe help us unpack as we interpret what does this passage mean and how do we apply it to our lives today. Okay, so let's start with um, the Gospel of Matthew. Does anybody know who the, the audience, original audience, was intended to be? Who did Matthew compile this gospel for? The, the Jews. So, so not just the Jews, but Jewish believers. That, but they were still um, very much identifying themselves as Jews. Okay, that's, that's pretty important as opposed to Luke, who his primary audience were Greeks. So there's some things that Jews would understand that the Greeks might not. And uh, there's some language, perhaps, that Matthew would use that, that Luke would use a little differently. Uh, for instance, um, we're going to look at uh, Matthew 5.3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you read that, that uh, parallel passage in Luke, it would say, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Why do you think there's a difference there? Or is there, is there a difference in meaning or just a difference in words? What word or name are Jews not supposed to speak or write for fear of offending God? And so Matthew uses the term heaven with the understanding being that the kingdom of heaven is this place where God exists. So it, it's a... It's a metaphor, meaning the kingdom of God. Um, so don't, don't be thrown off if you see this. Uh, Matthew says kingdom of heaven, and Luke will say kingdom of God. It means the same thing. It means the place where God's reign rules. That's the kingdom that God is about, where God's reign rules. Okay, uh, a couple other things. Um, one of the things I like to do, and sorry I don't have a brighter marker here, but I look at, and I know it's orange and not red, and you know, I would have gotten a neutral one, but, um, uh, but one of the things, this, this little acrostic helps me understand as I look at the context, you know, what were the social, economic, religious, and political factors that, that were influencing this audience and perhaps the writer at this time. So 
Let's go back to Matthew. Um, now, scholars vary a little bit as to when Matthew compiled this, this writing. Now, by the way, keep in mind, Matthew didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write this, this book so that a Sunday school class in 2016 at Crossings can open it up. Matthew wrote this book for Jewish believers of the first century. That's who his audience was in mind. Okay, so uh, what, what were some of, uh, or scholars were very little bit that Matthew could be written anywhere. The earliest date is maybe 55 A.D., maybe as late as about 95 A.D., I personally, I lean towards a little bit later date. Uh, but in that, in that time set, what are some things that we know about that, that time, um, either the political, religious, economic, or social factors that were going on in those days? Who, who was in control politically? Rome. And depending upon when... Um, Anybody recall who was in charge at about 64 A.D. and why that, that date kind of may stick out in the minds of Christians? Nero. And what was Nero known for? Fiddling while Rome was burning and blamed the Christians for it. So what did he do? He started persecuting the Christians. Okay, so, so there's a sense of persecution going on in this early church by Rome. Now, if it's a later date, actually, there's a guy that was worse than Nero. At least the early church uh, thought he, he was as bad as Nero and towards the, uh, in the 90s. His name was Flavius. And he took, he took persecution even to a higher level. And um, so... Whether it's an early date or a late date, it was, it was not a fun time to be a Christian. Okay? There's lots of persecution going on. Uh, what else do we know? Either re religiously. What happened in 70? The temple was destroyed. Okay? So that's a very significant time, at least in, in Jewish history. But... Part of all of this that was happening too is what was what we refer to as the diaspora. Does anybody recall from your world history what does diaspora mean? What was happening? Dispersed, right. So so Jews were being dispersed around the world. And so beginning in 70 AD until 1946, actually 72, Masada, uh, basically the Jews had no homeland. This diaspora was occurring. Okay, and the other thing that was going on because Nero was blaming the Christians and um, the Jews were having kind of their, their own challenges um, outside of the Jewish Christian world, 
Rome didn't see any difference. They just saw this Jesus as being a, a, a Jewish teacher, Jewish rabbi that started this little, maybe a little sect of followers. So in the Roman eyes, they were all the same. And so the, the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, they were very quick here to try to separate and say, wait a minute, these, this Christian group, that's not part of our group because all of this persecution was going on and they were already having enough issues. So they were trying to even further uh, separate themselves from being, a, being associated with this sect. Okay, economically, what was it like in Palestine, first century? Good if you were Roman or landowner. Bad if you were Christian. Bad if you didn't own land or if you weren't a Roman. And part of that is they were powerless. That's an interesting term. It's one that, that I, I, I think we don't pay enough attention to. In the work that I do around the world in, in working with the poor, one of the key, when you ask the poor, uh, what, what's the worst thing about being poor? It's this idea of being powerlessness, powerless, that there's no hope, that, that it, it, this is the way it is, it's the way it's always been, it's the way it always will be. So along with that is this idea of no hope. And then socially. Well, we kind of talked about that a little bit. You know, they're trying to differentiate. There was a diaspora that was going on. So, and, and there was persecution that was happening. So this is the scene. This is the setting. This is the environment that Matthew says, I, I, I want to encourage I, I, I want to, 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 to um, <laughs> the best that I can, I want to have people to say, hold on, hold on. Because remember, they also thought Jesus' return was imminent any day. Any day. And so Matthew's purpose here was, hold on, I, I know it's, it's really bad, but Jesus will do what he says he's going to do. He's going to come back. Okay, so this is kind of the, uh, a real high-level overview context of, of the passage here as we jump into this. Okay, so as we, as we look at this passage, oops, and my Bible closed again. Let me open it. Okay, so we have, well, get the right password. Yeah, okay. Here we go. So, um, oh, the other thing I want to say about what Matthew here, um, part of what Matthew is trying to do as well is Matthew is attempting to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So while mainly they were Jewish believers, there were still some Jews on the fringe who weren't sure about this Jesus guy. And so, actually, when you, if you look at the whole Gospel of Matthew, 
it can be divided into five sections. Okay, is the number five significant in the Jewish mind for any reason? Well, what, 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 what was enumerated by the number five? Pardon? The Pentateuch, that's right, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament were attributed to Moses. Okay, Moses went up Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, brought them back down to the people. Jesus goes up the hill, he begins teaching these eight principles we call the Beatitudes and brings them to the people. So there's, there's this uh, underlying theme where Matthew is connecting these dots to say Jesus is the Messiah. See, th this is a continuation of one story. And so this is part of Matthew's, uh, uh, the theme going on throughout the whole book of Matthew as well. Okay, so now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay, so the first thing I want to look at is this term blessed or blessing. In fact, in your Bible, it, maybe you've got a, a heading for this section. It, it may be called the Beatitudes. Does anybody know what that word means, Beatitude? It's a Latin term that means blessing. Real clever. Um, so when, when uh, the NIV or whoever you have there decided to, to start putting some subheadings in here, uh, they use these fancy Latin terms and think, wow, they are so smart. Um, so it just means blessing. Okay, this term blessed was a way of defining somebody in first century Palestine as someone who was fortunate. Someone who was fortunate was considered to be blessed. Let me pause for a moment and just challenge or ask this question. How do we use the term blessed today? When I work really hard and, um, or, or, you know, a grand, grandchild works really hard, does their homework, gets a hundred on their spelling test, we say, oh, you're so blessed. Or because I worked really hard and I got a bonus at Christmas time, um, some of the times we'll say, oh, I'm so blessed. Um, buy a new car, oh, I'm so blessed. Um, I, often in our culture, this word blessed begins to take on an economic overtone. 
some sort of windfall that can only be explained by the power of God. Not the fact that you reap what you harvest. We forget that principle. If you work hard, sometimes you get a bonus because you worked really hard. Okay, so um, th- this idea of being blessed, and I think, I think the Jews had a hard time with this understanding too. And it, 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 it's the same idea throughout the whole Old Testament. The idea was, if you were poor, you obviously have not been blessed by God. And so that's why it was really difficult in the Jewish mind to see these wealthy uh, Greeks and Romans and saying, God... <laughs> This, is, this picture is wrong. These people do not love you. Why are they so wealthy? And, okay, when your kingdom comes, we know the Messiah is going to set this right and, and we'll restore our fortunes and these Greeks and Romans are going to serve us because that's the way it's supposed to be. Because remember, they're thinking King David, the glory, you know, the good old days, you know, like the 1950s of U.S., you know, the good old days, um, when, when Israel was the ruler of the world at that day, the most powerful and affluent, uh, influential nation. And so this idea has been embedded for a thousand years here. And so this idea of, of if you're going to be blessed by God, then that means you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And though... If, if I were to challenge you with that idea or that concept, <coughs> excuse me, you may dismiss it, say, oh, no, no, no. You know, um, God doesn't work that way. But yet, sometimes I think we really do act as if God does favor me. So if he's going to favor me, that means I'm gonna, my 401k isn't going to be disrupted. That means I'm never going to have any challenges. It means I'm never going to get sick. Or if I do get sick, all I got to do is pray and I'm going to be healed because I'm blessed. I, I, I'm going to suggest this is my definition of blessed. I believe blessing is when God intervenes into the affairs of mankind for his benefit and glory. When I read through the Old Testament, anytime, or actually the New Testament, anytime I see this idea where God blessed, it was to advance his mission. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you might be a blessing to all nations. And so the, this idea of blessing, if we're going to really pray for God's blessings, then what we're doing is we're praying that God intervene in our daily affairs for his glory and honor. And his glory and honor sometimes is found when we go through some pretty painful things. Just like James says, James 1, you know, be be grateful when you have these trials because it can be a really good thing. So 
the, probably a more appropriate term that we would use, and maybe some of your Bibles have translated to a, a more uh, appropriate English term today, would be happy. Uh, so best interpret this term instead of blessed being happy. Now, let me take a moment on that word too, because our modern day usage of the word happy has devalued it. And we, we must understand that Jesus is talking about the inner joy and peace that comes with being right with God. That's happy. That's fulfilled. And maybe that's even more appropriate word in our connotation of words today. That being fulfilled, being, being in the right place, that right relationship with God, being at peace, having that, in spite of circumstances, that internal um, just anchor and, and saying, as a poet, it doesn't matter how the winds blow or the billows roll. You know, I, I know who my Savior is. And, and I'm, I have, I'm on the solid rock here. Boy, I got several there, hymns all tied together in that one, didn't I? So, um, so, so this idea of being happy, not ha-ha-ha-ha, you know, not, not in the sense of, you know, having gone to a party or, or that, um, you know, OSU won a game or OU won a game and you're happy about that. Um, those are temporary kinds of things. It's this deep, deep sense of being in, the, in right relationship with God. Okay, so who are the poor? Well, a poor person in first century Palestine was what we would refer to as a beggar. One who is dependent on another to survive. Okay, now, you have to think, think back here. You know, Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor. Okay, that term right there just goes against, you know, the, 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 the Jewish mind of first century. How could the poor be blessed? If they were blessed, they'd be rich and not poor. So his first words are, blessed are the poor. So he, he's, he, he, it goes back to what Stella was saying in Isaiah 55. God's ways are not man's ways. And, and, and God is saying, or Jesus is saying here, if you want to really be happy, become dependent which is really hard for the Western mindset, especially the U.S. Uh, mindset, because we're all about independence. And, and, and I think there's a place for that. But when it comes to our spiritual life, Jesus is saying, if you want to be happy, be a beggar. Be totally dependent on something outside of yourself. So as we define this or... The, this uh, definition of poor, sometimes we use the word poor, define poor as a lack of money. Um, in the U.S., anybody know what the, the uh, financial line is for considered poverty line, annual income? It's about 25000 Okay, about 25000 Um let me ask. Let me ask you this: uh, Does does uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but um, does anybody in here not have a refrigerator? 
Okay, if you have a refrigerator, you're not poor. <laughs> Relative to the rest of the world who lives on less than $2 a day. <clears throat> Anybody have more than one car? Anybody have a car? Okay, you're, you're, you're not poor. In fact, um, a associate of mine was in uh, New York and um, had gotten, this is before Uber got real popular, and had, had uh, gotten a taxi. And uh, the gentleman obviously was from a different country. You could tell by the, his accent. And uh, so he asked him about where he was from. And um, come to find out, this guy was a learned individual. I mean, I think he had his Ph.D. And he was teaching in his homeland. And, and the question was, well, why do you, why'd you come to America and you're driving a cab? His answer was, I want to live where even the poor people are fat. <laughs> um, which reminded me of a, a trip I was on in Africa. And um, I, I don't remember, I was Uganda or Kenya. And I was in this community and... and um, some of the, the moms just kind of started giggling and talking amongst themselves. So I was asking my interpreter what's going on. And um, they, they were just, he interpreter said, well, they're commenting about how obviously rich you are. And I thought, oh, no, I'm trying to be really sensitive. Is it that what I'm wearing? Is it, you know, shoes? Um, you know, is it the fact that I... You know, I, I, I got on an airplane and came. I said, oh, no, it's because you're fat. I was like, uh, you get, obviously you're rich. Um, so, so sometimes we, 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 we pigeonhole that, that word poor. Sometimes we use the word poor referring to quality. You know, inferior quality of, of a construction or how something is produced. Sometimes we'll refer to that as poor. Um, but again, scripturally, biblically, I think what Jesus is referring to here is poor in spirit isn't necessarily about your bank account or the quality of your life. But whether you kept all the Ten Commandments or whether you didn't, poor referred to humility before God. Humility is the realization that you have nothing in this life that you can contribute in order to receive citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's recognizing that God is God and I am not. God is God, I am not. My wife reminds me of that uh, I, I say that phrase often, and sometimes my wife has to uh, repeat it for me. Uh, sometimes I forget. God is God, and I am not. It's this idea of humility that it doesn't matter how much or how little money I have. It doesn't matter whether I've kept all the Ten Commandments or I break them on a daily basis. The only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to be a beggar and, and humbly throw myself before God and say, 
It's only through your mercy and grace that I am invited into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> you know, sometimes just as I, I, I think we err in um, good fortune or being fortunate, um, we call those blessings, which again, I, I, <clears throat> I would encourage us to change our language because sometimes what we, what we unintentionally say when we do that, especially if you ever work in, uh, with people who are pretty impoverished, is you're, you're, you're setting yourself up because I'm educated because I have money, I have a car, or I can jump on an airplane. I'm blessed. You are not. I'm here. Me and God, we got this thing going on. Sure wish you had the same blessings I did. So we unintentionally sometimes communicate that message. Now, I think it's good to be grateful for things that come our way, for the hard work. God has put some principles in place. And that's why uh, unholy people can be very wealthy because they follow the same principles that God has laid out in the Bible. Their, their principle, you know, the, the farmer, you know, uh, you sow the seed, you work the, the land. Whether you go to church on Sunday or not, you're probably going to have the same harvest. That's, I think that's the same thing. And the opposite of that, sometimes I, we think that God is punishing us. Well, don't get me wrong. There will be a day of judgment. I just don't think it's here yet. Sin punishes itself. You know, it's the law of don't touch the hot stove. That's why, I think that's part of why God is so passionate about saying to his people, just oh, don't do that. I can tell you the consequences are going to be really miserable. The stove is hot, don't touch it. Be faithful to your spouse, don't, don't have an affair. I can tell you it's going to not turn out good. When God says, look, be honest with one another. He's saying, look, this is, this is the good. When you lie, man, there's all kinds of consequences that come with that. When you steal, there's all kinds of consequences. Now, does it offend God? <clears throat> I'm going to say, I think it breaks the heart of God just as it does when you see your child or your grandchildren making decisions that you know are going to result in, a, in some pain. Yeah, I think God's heart is broken. I don't think it's because he's so holy and I offend him. We can get into that whole theological, that, that's another conversation. But I think more than anything, God is saying, look, I'm trying to tell you that, that's just not a good way to live life. There are consequences. You touch the hot stove, you're going to get burnt. Sin punishes sin in our daily life. So what do we do with this? How, what do we do with this message? How do we apply it? Um, well, 
I, I, my concluding thought here is if we're going to grow spiritually, therefore we must grow in our dependency on God and demonstrate our poverty of spirit on a regular basis. Now, how do you do that? <clears throat> I'm going to suggest to you that's going to be pretty individual. And, and I think that's something we, that's a prayer that God is eager to answer. To come, we come before God and say, God, show me where I'm not being poor in spirit. Are there areas of my life I'm not depending on you? I'm depending on my, my bank account. I'm depending on my friendships in this world. I'm depending on something other than you. I think God will be happy to reveal that. I think this attitude of gratitude, I think we, we do have much to be grateful for. The fact that we can even gather here without fear of persecution is something tremendous to be grateful for. And, and I think one way to, to uh, the antidote to pride is gratitude. Because if, um, you know, if, if, if humility brings you to blessings, then pride brings you to destruction. Actually, there's a proverb that says that too. Um, so this idea, how do we deal with our pride? Gratitude. The more grateful we are, the more we begin to subdue our pride and, and, and we begin demonstrating an attitude of humility. You know, this kingdom of God idea. In Genesis 1, Chapter 1, 2, and 3, we, in the creation story, we're told that we're created in the image of God. This idea of an image bearer, um, you know, sometimes we, we, I've heard that interpreted as, you know, it's kind of a blueprint and, you know, you kind of have some of this imagery, you know, you have, well, that, that, may, be, that may be an okay idea to think about. But what I think, this idea of image bearer, when you understand um, in, in those days <clears throat> that the, they didn't have GPS yet, and so to know where the boundary markers were of a kingdom, the king would create an image of himself and post it to identify, this is my territory. Okay, so the idea of an image bearer, I think, when we look at that from a biblical standpoint, God is saying, you are my image bearers. Where you go becomes holy ground. The idea is you are declare that this space is a place where God rules and God's principles reign. As an image bearer at work, it may just be your cubicle. But in that cubicle, this is a place where God's rule reigns. It may be in the conference room. It may be beyond that. You are called to be God's image bearers in your neighborhood. In this house, God's rule will reign. 
In this neighborhood, we seek to be image bearers to say, this is God's area and space. And how do we do that? <clears throat> what does that look like in a practical way? When you go home today, read Isaiah 65, verses 20 through 25. The prophet there describes God's vision of a community. It says babies don't die. You live a long time. There's peace. There's plenty of food. There's meaningful work. There's no homelessness. It's it says, and God answers your prayer before you even pray it. That's God's vision of a community. So as image bearers, being poor in spirit, knowing I can't proclaim God's kingdom in my cubicle because I'm good enough or I have enough resources, it's only because I'm a beggar and say, God, only through you. And your kingdom reign in this place, in this space. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that words that were written for another audience thousands of years ago still have value and meaning to us today as we understand them. As we leave this place, may we recognize that we're simply one beggar called to show other beggars where to find bread. May we be your image bearers as we go this in our uh, work and homes and families and community, wherever we might be this week. As we step our foot, may we, our witness, declare that this is the kingdom of God for your world reigns in this place and space. In Christ's name I pray, amen.